Welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is our final panel of the day, which has gone, and we did never done a virtual uh, online Constitution Day before, so I think it's going it's going better than I thought it would, and it's actually going excellent. So this one I expect, as is always, is the sort of more laid back, informal, looking ahead panel, where we're looking ahead to the court's term that begins in a couple weeks. Uh, joining me for the panel, uh, we have Anastasia Bowden, who's a senior attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation and a former Cato Legal Associate. That's uh, along with Nick Mosvick on the uh, on the second panel, is uh, the second former Cato Legal Associate uh, joining us today. The, at PLF, she challenges anti-competitive licensing laws and laws that restrict freedom of speech. She is the co-host of the forthcoming Supreme Court podcast, Dist, with Elizabeth Slattery, formerly of Heritage, now of Pacific Legal Foundation, and also Elizabeth contributed last year's Looking Ahead article, uh, and Anastasia commit, uh, did this year's Looking Ahead article. Also joining us is Tom Goldstein, partner at Goldstein & Russell. He has served as counsel to in party to roughly 125 merits cases at the court. This fall, he will argue his 44th Google v. Oracle on behalf of Google, which has been described as the copyright case of the century. I'm sure Tom has been thinking a lot about copyright recently, so we can maybe talk about other things. Only three lawyers in the court's modern history have argued more cases in private practice. Tom is also the co-founder and publisher of SCOTUS Blog, something I'm sure you have all heard of a website devoted to comprehensive coverage of the court, which is the only weblog to ever receive the Peabody Award. And finally, Kim Robinson, who is the Supreme Court reporter for Bloomberg. Welcome, everybody. We're going to start with Anastasia, uh, kicking it off with a few discussion, and then we'll go down the line and then open it up to questions later. Remember, we will, we encourage, we want, we would love for you to ask questions. Uh, that's You can do that on social media. You can do that uh, via the Q&A here on Zoom. And the Twitter hashtag is, is hashtag Cato SCOTUS. Anastasia? Thanks, Trevor, and thanks to you and Ilya and Cato for having me. It's every constitutional lawyer's dream to speak here on Constitution Day, or at least it was my dream when I was an intern, as you said just a decade ago. In writing my article for the Cato Journal, which is, of course, the looking forward article, and talking about the upcoming Supreme Court term, I observed that this year looking forward in many ways means looking back. And one reason is simply the holdover cases. There was a series of cases that was originally scheduled for argument last term, but after the court closed for a short period due to COVID, these cases were scheduled, were rescheduled for this term. And so for many of us, we're looking back to cases that we were expecting to hear last term. This includes the Ford Motor case regarding personal jurisdiction, uh, the Tanzing case regarding money damages under RIFRA, and Carney, which Kimberly's going to speak to regarding the political affiliation of state court judges. Another reason that looking forward now entails looking back is that the court is considering issues that are extremely similar to those that it considered last term. So in the Collins case, it will decide the same question it decided last year and see the law, that is whether a limitation on the president's removal power violates the separation of powers, but it will consider that same question in the context of a different agency. In Facebook, in the Facebook case, the court is once again going to consider the reach of the federal robocaller ban. That's a lot I didn't know existed because I get uh, robocalls all the time. I didn't know that until last term. Uh, and last term, the court had considered uh, the very same statute in the Barr versus American Association of Political Consultants case, and it's going to do so again uh, in the Facebook case this term. And lastly, in the Edwards case, it will decide whether its decision last term in Ramos, which extended the Sixth Amendment guarantee of a unanimous jury verdict uh, to the states, applies retroactively. 
But to me, the biggest sense of deja vu comes from the fact that the court is slated to consider whether the Affordable Care Act, aka Obamacare, and its individual mandate are unconstitutional. I was an intern at Cato when this case was first being heard, so it's truly deja vu to uh, be here again talking about it, except under drastically improved circumstances on the stage rather than editing the journal. Uh, this is the seventh time that Obamacare is being heard before the court. The court has considered the Medicaid expansion, the employer contraception mandate under RIFRA, the application of that contraception mandate to religious organizations, whether an administrative agency has authority to exempt religious organizations from that requirement, tax credits uh, as applied to federal exchanges, reimbursement requirements for the government to reimburse insurers who sustain losses as a result of the ACA. So there have been many cases, but the most famous case was that initial challenge in my mind, uh, NFIB versus Sibelius, which challenged the requirement that individuals purchase health insurance or pay a penalty. That's the so-called individual mandate. In NFIB, Chief Justice Roberts famously used a savings construction to uphold the law as a tax. He said in his opinion that this was not the most natural interpretation, but it was a fairly possible one. Chief Justice Roberts did, however, agree with four dissenting members, Justices Kennedy, Scalia, Alito, and Thomas, that the mandate exceeded Congress's authority under the Commerce Clause. So the mandate stayed on the books, but we did have that holding, uh, at least with regards to the extent of Congress's Commerce Clause power. Well, in 2017, things changed. The administration had changed, Congress had changed, and Congress reduced the tax for not having health insurance to nothing. That is to the lesser of, I think, 0% of one's income or $0. And so naturally, there was another lawsuit. Uh, two individuals in 18 states filed a new lawsuit arguing that the tax was no longer a tax because it doesn't raise any revenue, and raising revenue is the very definition of a tax. The tax is gone, the tax is now a mandate, and under that original decision in NFIB, it is an unconstitutional mandate, um, and furthermore, it cannot be severed from the rest of the act, so the whole thing must fall. Now, some people have said to me that they think that this is too clever by half, but indeed it has won the day. At the district court, the federal defendants uh, themselves agreed that the law was unconstitutional, even if they disagreed on the severability point. And based on the fact that they agreed on the merits that the law was unconstitutional, a group of states intervened to help defend the law on the merits. And that's how we get the case name, California versus Texas. Uh, Texas was initially one of the states that brought suit and California was one of the states that intervened to help defend the law. The district court agreed with the plaintiffs that the law was unconstitutional and it struck down the entire act, granted it stayed its judgment pending appeal. And the Fifth Circuit affirmed, except for it remanded on the severability point. And now the case has been petitioned to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court gets to decide once again, and particularly Chief Justice Roberts gets to decide once again, is this mandate slash tax, not tax uh, constitutional? I think there's a lot of ways uh, Chief Justice Roberts and the court can get out of ruling on this. Um, they could get derailed by the standing argument. There is a standing argument uh, that the plaintiffs don't have standing because this is just a choice. They don't have to abide by the mandate. There's no penalty for doing so. So they're not really harmed by the law being on the books. The same goes for the states. Um, and there's also the severability question, which 
will allow the court, if it wants to, to strike down the mandate, but very narrowly and leave the rest of Obamacare intact. So that is uh, Obamacare. The second case I want to speak to is Tanzan versus Tanver. Canvier. In this case, the court will consider whether the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, also known as RIFRA, allows a claim for money damages where the plaintiff sues a federal official in their individual capacity. The case arose when a group of Muslim men, all of which were U.S. citizens or lawful permanent residents, alleged that a senior government official placed them on the no-fly list, in some cases four years as retaliation for refusing to become FBI informants. At least one of the plaintiffs was banned from traveling by plane for several years, despite presenting no known threat to aviation safety, causing him to lose his job, which required him to fly and depriving him to, of the ability to visit his family in Pakistan. The men alleged that they had refused the officials overtures to act as informants, at least in part because of their sincerely held religious beliefs, which triggers RIFRA, and so they sued these government officials under RIFRA. After giving the men the runaround for years, giving them pretty much no answer even about whether they were officially on the no-fly list and giving them no redress, uh, the men had sued and the government changed its tune. It changed the redress procedure, allowing them to once again petition through that procedure, at which the men did. And the government responded that they didn't see any reason why the men should be on the no-fly list. They didn't have anything on their end. So now that these, uh, these men had gotten redressed, they dismissed those claims. But they wanted their claim for damages to move forward. And the district court dismissed that claim on the basis that RIFRA does not permit money damages against government officials. The Second Circuit reversed. It held that it does permit money damages. And now SCOTUS has granted cert to hear it. And the dispute here is about when courts should be able to impose money damages as relief against government officials. RIFRA itself is not explicit about money damages. The government argues that by deciding whether to impose money damages, the court is essentially making a policy decision that has policy implications. Uh, it can dissuade officials, says the government, from acting vigorously to perform their duties because now they're gonna fear uh, possible money damages. And the plaintiffs argue that courts should be presumed to have the inherent power to provide all appropriate relief, including money damages, unless the, leg unless the legislature says otherwise. And that actually preserves the separation of powers between courts and legislatures because it offers all forms of relief to the court and the legislature can then later make a policy decision about whether to provide immunity or indemnity or what have you. But where there's no clear intent from the legislature to exclude money damages, uh, we should presume that courts have that power and that actually pres preserves the proper separation of powers. The reason this case is important is because money damages are often an important remedy for plaintiffs who seek to vindicate their constitutional rights in court where people have been injured and injunctive or declaratory relief is impractical or unavailable, damages often are the only way to make the person fully whole. And even when they're not the only remedy, they are an important means of imposing accountability. So that's a dispute that's going to be heard next term. The last case I want to talk about is Uzabunum versus Proshevsky involving whether a claim for nominal damages defeats mootness. Sometimes when you sue the government, you may have the effect of inducing the government to change its policy at some point before the court issues its ruling. And that's 
generally a good thing. You get the policy changed, except that in the absence of a court opinion, the government may choose to resume its policy at a later date down the line. And so the plaintiff doesn't really get what they asked for. That is the prevention of the government ever doing this again. And they don't get the full vindication of their constitutional rights. Yes, the government has ceased the policy, but they've never got this vindication of their constitutional rights in court, um, which they feel is important. Nevertheless, when plaintiffs get something, what they when they get what they asked for primarily, like getting rid of an unconstitutional policy, courts will generally rule that the case is moot and that they no longer have jurisdiction to hear the case. But that's not true necessarily when the plaintiff brings a claim for nominal damages. So the facts of this case are that Uzabunum was stopped by campus police from distributing religious literature at his college when he was a student. And when the officer stopped him, he explained that no one could distribute writings of any kind at that location, uh, given the school's freedom of expression policy, which I think is sort of ironically titled. Instead, students were forced to uh, distribute literature or speak in certain zones, which occupied a very small part of the campus and were open just 18 hours a week. So Uzabenim dutifully reserves a zone only to once again be approached by a member of campus police who says that there's been complaints about his speech and who asks him to stop speaking. And uh, the officer informed Uzabenim that his speech qualified as disorderly conduct under the school's student code of conduct. After this second, account, this second encounter, Uzabunum sued university officials under the First Amendment, asking for declaratory and injunctive relief and nominal damages. And of course, you know, it's not uncommon uh, when the government knows it's gonna lose. The college revised its policy to permit speech everywhere without a permit in limited circumstances and uh, changed its code of conduct. And then it moved to dismiss the lawsuit as moot. Now, as a litigator that often sues the government, and uh, I think I can speak for many plaintiffs here, this is very, very frustrating. Yes, you've gotten the policy change, but plaintiffs also want the court to vindicate their injury. They want the court to acknowledge that what the government did was unconstitutional. That is a primary uh, uh, role of the court is to ensure this constitutional accountability. And oftentimes it takes years slogging through litigation up until the eve of trial to get the government to change its policy. And it seems, it seems deeply unfair that they can get off scot-free by just changing their policy, never acknowledging that they've done any wrong to you in the past when you have in fact been injured. The policy has injured you in the past. So the plaintiff's claim in this case is I have a claim for nominal damages those nominal damages represent the vindication of my constitutional rights, and that's not nothing. I should be able to pursue that even if the government has dropped its policy. And of course, nominal, damage, nominal damages are allowed. You would be entitled to that if you won on the merits, so you just want that claim to go forward. The district court granted the motion to dismiss based on mootness, ruling that since the college had changed its policies and there was no basis to expect that it would return to them in the future, uh, the case was moot and nominal damages could not save the suit from being moved. The 11th Circuit affirmed, and this created a deep circuit split, or it deepened the circuit split between six circuits who hold that the government's policy change never moots nominal damages claims. The two circuits that hold that nominal damages claims will defeat uh, mootness if the policy has in fact been enforced against the plaintiff in the past. And then the 11th Circuit, which held that such claims are always moot unless there is an accompanying compensatory damages claim. 
the plaintiffs again argue that nominal damages claims represent a constitutional injury and should be treated the same way that compensatory damages are treated. I thought it was really interesting the diverse array of groups that filed amicus briefs in this case in support of certiorari, uh, demonstrating the broad interest uh, among organizations that litigate in the public interest. They clearly recognize that this is a problem. The amici included groups across the religious spectrum, uh, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, that's FIRE, groups like Young Americans for Liberty, the American Humanist Society, uh, they all recognize that uh, that you need to get your rights vindicated in court um, in order to have a just society. And I also thought I wanted to point to the Americans for Prosperity brief, which I thought wrote a particularly interesting amicus brief, arguing that the 11th Circuit's decision exacerbates the problems wrought by qualified immunity because it noted that you can only overcome qualified immunity when there is well-established precedent on point. But when you allow mootness like this, you allow the government to evade well-established precedent. Um, and you know, there's enough problems with qualified immunity doctrine itself that it sort of builds on itself with this mootness problem where it makes it extremely difficult to ever point to precedent because it's so difficult to develop precedent in the first place. And in fact, if you read that brief, there is a, a citation to Judge Willett who describes the qualified immunity conundrum and how it sort of builds on itself and makes it harder and harder to ever, in fact, impose immunity. So those are the three cases I wanted to speak to, and I'm happy to fill questions and speak to the other panelists. Thank you, Anastasia. Tom? Sorry, I had to get unmuted. Well, thanks so much, uh, Trevor and Anastasia. I thought that I would uh, give a couple of thoughts about the cases that Anastasia was talking about and then raise three other upcoming cases of my own. Um, with respect to the Affordable Care Act, I do think the conventional wisdom is right, that it's extremely likely that the court will find the remainder of Obamacare severable. Uh, last term, we had a couple of severability cases in which the court really did seem to signal that the right thing to do when you're confronting a uh, provision of a statute that's unconstitutional is to try and save the rest. And that was true in CLE law, the CFPB case, and another. And it doesn't seem like the court is trying to position itself in a way that would, you know, so radically upend uh, the American healthcare system. Uh, that's kind of the theme that I drew from the chief's original opinion in the case, which is that the court itself shouldn't be making those kind of foundational decisions that have been the subject of debates in the country for decades and that are so important to people's lives. I, you know, it wouldn't be at all surprising if the court followed through and held that the mandatory minimum coverage provision, which is the one that it was upheld as a tax, is now unconstitutional. Uh, but that's something that's an inconsequential ruling given that everybody agrees that it's either unconstitutional or just defunct, nothing happens if you violate it. But it's the remainder of the statute, things like the pre-existing uh, conditions provisions that are super, super duper important, along with 900 other different things in the statute that affect the um, availability of healthcare in the country. Uh, I also was interested to see whether the court was going to hold argument in the case before the election under you know, a true first in, first out system that the court generally follows, you know, certs granted cases slotted for oral argument. The court would have heard oral argument 
like a day before the election, but it has put the case back. Uh, the issues in the case obviously have enormous political valence. People care a lot about their health care. The administration has simultaneously said that it strongly supports pre-existing condition provisions and coverage. Uh, at the same time as the administration has filed in the Supreme Court, uh, taking the view that the, almost the entire statute is unconstitutional, including the pre-existing condition provisions. Um, so it's public rhetoric and it's litigation positions are hard to uh, resolve and to align with each other. And it was interesting to see whether the court would be front and center in the election right uh, as we were going into the presidential election, but it looks like that won't be true. Nonetheless, it's obviously a critically important case. Um, with respect to uh, what we call voluntary cessation, the question of what do you do when you sue the government, the government says, okay, we give up uh, and we'll stop doing it. Um, we had uh, a very similar situation in litigating the legality and constitutionality of the acting attorney general uh, under uh, President Trump, where, uh, for example, we challenged, he had um, signed a regulation making bump stocks illegal. And we contended that he wasn't the, uh, which are, you know, a, 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 they get attached to long guns and turn them into uh, something closer to an automatic weapon, but not an automatic weapon. Uh, and we said that he had acted unlawfully because he was not the uh, actual acting attorney general. He hadn't been lawfully designated as such. And the day before the oral argument in the DC circuit, the uh, attorney general Barr ratified what it is that the acting attorney general had done. Uh, and so you see this a lot where the government comes along and tries to avoid the prospect of a court ruling. And it can be very, very, very troubling and very, very difficult for the courts to articulate what the law is. So it'll be very interesting to see whether the Supreme Court says that a request for a dollar, uh, even though it's not a dollar that'll make a difference to anybody, is enough to keep the case in court. There are a lot of uh, competing considerations about that. Uh, the three cases that I wanted to talk about, uh, one has been mentioned is my Google case, and then uh, a jurisdiction case and then a computer crimes case. Um, with the full disclosure that I represent Google, I'm gonna just try and describe the case in, in ordinary and neutral terms. It's a complicated case. Um, people have a very hard time following it if you're not in the field. Um, it involves computer interfaces. You can think of an interface as kind of a door that connects two different computer programs. Uh, it allows information to be passed from one program to another. And for a long, long time, the computer software industry has understood that you could take a computer interface from an old program written by somebody else and reuse it in a new program. And that allows for new entrants to come in and offer better software. Because if every new program has to have its own interface that's new and different from everything that came before it, it can be very, very, very hard for new programs to be, get, be accepted. And if they can reuse the interfaces from other programs, it's much easier. So you could imagine if there's an interface that allows you know, a photograph to be imported into Apple Photos, if a new photo company can come along and say, well, that computer program you've written to convert your thing into Apple Photos will work with our program too, the new entrant's much more likely to be accepted. Another example would be something like Amazon Web Services. 
if you are um, a cloud computing customer, uh, the biggest player is Amazon Web Services. And so there's an interface that allows your files to be saved to Amazon Web Services. But if a new company comes along and offers cloud computing and says, all the stuff that you've written to work with Amazon Web Services will work with our, you can transfer your files to us as well, you're much, much more likely to be uh, willing to think about uh, using the competitor. In all events, that's how the software industry has understood things. The district court in this case uh, found that that was true and that you can reuse interfaces. The case is uh, brought by Oracle and Oracle challenges Google's reuse of interfaces from the uh, a, a set of uh, short programs that Oracle wrote for the Java programming language. And what happened was that when Google created the Android soft, uh, smartphone operating system, it reused these interfaces that allow Java software engineers, which there are millions, to reuse the commands that they know from Java to write applications for Android rather than having to learn thousands of new uh, commands. Uh, the Federal Circuit, however, held that that was copyright infringement, that the interfaces are copyrightable and that the reuse of them is not fair use under the Copyright Act. Uh, the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case uh, on the basis of its importance. The case went through the Federal Circuit, so there's no circuit conflict. And the Trump administration has joined uh, Oracle's position saying that you can't uh, do this, you can't reuse this, these materials. They're supported by various content creators. On the other hand, Google is supported by the software industry and most of the nation's copyright scholars. Uh, so it's an interesting uh, and important copyright case for the software industry uh, and for the development of new technology and you know, whoever's right or wrong. I, I don't think anybody doubts the significance of it. Uh, the second cases that I was going to talk about are actually a pair of cases involving Ford Motor Company. They're about jurisdiction, that is the power of courts to decide cases, and in particular they're about specific jurisdiction, which is the argument that you can file suit in a federal court because there's a particular link between the case itself and the jurisdiction, as opposed to the defendant more broadly, that's called general jurisdiction. So. These specific jurisdiction cases are kind of law school hypotheticals that uh, most people I think had been, thought had been resolved by the Supreme Court, but it turns out not. And the case runs in uh, a perfectly ordinary way. And that is that the plaintiffs buy a used Ford vehicle in a state. Uh, there's an accident and they bring a claim alleging that the car was defective. To which Ford says, look, uh, you can't sue me in the state where you bought the car and where the accident occurred because I didn't sell it there. I sold it in you know, two states over. Uh, the plaintiff says back, come on, uh, everything about the accident happened here and you sell a billion Ford uh, vehicles into the state anyway. And so you know, quit your griping. Well, the Supreme Court has been quite tough on jurisdiction in recent years, both with respect to general jurisdiction, the idea of where you can, whether you can sue a company for anything in a particular state and specific jurisdiction, how close of a relationship there has to be between the events of the case uh, and the defendant's activities in the particular state. Uh, and so it is very, very interesting to see whether the Supreme Court uh, continues to narrow the jurisdiction of the courts 
uh, it has tended to do so in a way that has cut down and uh, on forum shopping, uh, where plaintiffs are trying to get into particular courts, for example, the courts of the state of California. This isn't a forum, sh forum shopping case in any way. The plaintiffs live in the state where they brought suit and the accident happened there. Uh, um, it is instead a case that presents the kind of formalist question of, do you have to directly tie the defendant's activities in the state to the claim that is brought in the court, in the federal court in that state? Um, and uh, the defense have been has defense has been winning uh, all the jurisdiction cases in front of the Supreme Court recently, uh, and so uh, it'll be interesting to see what they do uh, in this case. Uh, the last case that I'm going to talk about is a case called Van Buren. It's a computer crimes case. The Supreme Court. Uh, uh, confronting more and more technology-related issues as it is in Google versus Oracle. The case involves the unauthorized access of computer uh, systems under the federal computer fraud statute. So you have here a cop and a cop is asked to run a search on a law enforcement database as part of essentially an FBI sting. And he has access to the database in his job is, you know, requires him as a police officer to use the database, but he's using it for a reason that he's definitely not supposed to. Uh, and the question in front of the Supreme Court is, is that a federal crime or is instead the federal uh, criminal statute limited to circumstances that are closer to hacking, where you're not supposed to be using the computer system at all. And it's a difficult question on an intuitive level. We don't want cops you know, misusing law enforcement databases. That sounds to me like something that ought to be a federal crime. On the other hand, it's super hard to draw the lines here because every employer has formalistic terms of service on how it is that you can use the company's computers, for example. Uh, so to Facebook, so to, in, in, there are innumerable restrictions on our use of computers that we are otherwise allowed to use. And it's very hard to know if this criminal conviction stands where the line is between, oh, you really shouldn't have done that. And hey, that's a felony. Say goodbye to your family. Um, and the, the, it's not at all clear. The Supreme Court has very little experience with this, uh, where it'll draw the line in terms of what an unauthorized use is. There's a very, very widespread support for the defendant in the case. Uh, alleging that this is a kind of limitless, boundless interpretation of the statute. On the other hand, privacy advocates uh, are defending the application of the statute, concerned that people will misuse databases and other computer systems to which they otherwise have lawful access. Uh, so no doubt an important case uh, for electronic privacy. So those are the three that I wanted to, to discuss. Kimberly? Well, thank you, Tom. Um, so I also have three cases. Um, my cases are from the October sitting, the November sitting, and the December sitting, but that's probably the only thread tying them all together um, is that they're well spaced out. Uh, so I'm going to kick off uh, with Carney versus Adams, as Anastasia mentioned, um, and it's actually the case that's going to kick off the 2020 term on October 5th. So James Adams is the plaintiff here. He is a self-described uh, Bernie Sanders independent, and he's challenging long-standing rules that effectively limit service on certain state courts in Delaware uh, to individuals who identify as either Republican or Democrat. 
So states pick judges in many different ways, but the Delaware system is similar to the federal system in that the governor makes an appointment and the Senate confirms. Uh, one way that it's different from the federal system, though, is that uh, Delaware has a law that basically requires that the bench be some people call it nonpartisan, but I think it more accurately, more accurately requires it to be uh, bipartisan. Um, so made up more or less equally of both Democrats and Republicans. Um, of course, uh, as an independent, uh, James Adams is challenging this law, saying that he would like to be considered for one of these judgeships, um, but is ineligible to do so. So there are really two parts of this law that are at issue, uh, the bare majority component and the political party component. Uh, the bare majority component just says that, you know, no party can have uh, more than just a bare majority on the court um, and really requires that they be equal when they can be. And the political party component says uh, the party who is not in the majority um, must be, or the part of the bench that's not in the majority must be filled by the other uh, major political party, as Democrat or Republican. And the court added a standing question to the case when it took it. I'm not going to talk about that um, because it's boring, uh, but I suspect the justices will talk about it since they asked the um, you know the parties to do so. Um, the issue really is uh, about when government officials can consider an applicant's um, political allegiance uh, for a job. And the Supreme Court has decided a few cases about that. Generally, consideration of political affiliation is prohibited, uh, but there's a policy making exception. And so very broadly, one of the factors that the courts will look at is whether or not the position is one that makes policy, whether there are discretionary duties, um, and whether they have decision making for kind of major policies. Um, and the purpose there is really to ensure that uh, employees can't undercut uh, the goals of the administration that is in power. And so we've seen courts uphold uh, you know, consideration of political loyalty for the director of the Veterans Administration Department, uh, city solicitors, assistant district attorneys, and um, positions like that. Uh, the Third Circuit here said judges just simply don't fit that bill. Um, it noted that they're actually required by ethics laws um, to be impartial and not loyal to one party or another, that they have to apply the law in a nonpartisan manner, and that they're even prohibited from engaging in um, partisan political activities. So the court acknowledged that, um, as Anastasia kind of mentioned, that of course, on some level, what courts do is make policy by deciding, for example, whether or not uh, people can seek money damages um, for certain claims. Uh, but it said the question is really about um, whether or not that relates to the goals of the party in charge. And so the court used this example of a football coach of a public university. Um, of course, that coach makes policy for the athletic department but it's not related to the goals of the current administration. Although, of course, the line between um, football and politics seems to be blurring these days, but uh, that's not up for consideration in the Supreme Court just yet. Uh, the Sixth and Seventh Circuits um, have gone the other way and said that judges can be policymaking body or positions. And that's probably the reason why the court took this case, um, was to sort out that circuit split. I say, I think that the reason why so many people are watching this case and why I'm talking to you about it today is that is where it's happening. It's happening in Delaware. 
uh, Delaware points out that its judiciary is, quote, the envy of the nation, um, and that its court system is really a major reason why corporations are largely chartered in Delaware. And of course, we see that Delaware has an outsized role in American corporate uh, law. Um, so that's that's um, Carney versus Adams. There's another issue about severability, um, but I'm not going to talk about that. Um, all, just to note, though, um, as mentioned before, that there have been a lot of uh, discussion about severability, um, and so we'll see that again here. Um, on to the November sitting. Uh, the court will hear Fulton versus City of Pennsylvania, which is not to be confused with City of Chicago versus Fulton, which has caused me um, an endless amount of confusion as I prepare for this term. Uh, the case out of Philadelphia is the latest in the fight over how to balance uh, religious beliefs with anti-discrimination laws, particularly those uh, relating to LGBT citizens. Now, the court has been grappling with that question ever since since it recognized uh, a right for same-sex couples to marry in Obergefell, but it hasn't really been able to come up with a satisfactory answer to that. And so, for example, we saw a couple of terms ago in Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, that the court really found um, a really fact-specific way out of that case um, to send it back to the lower court. Um, so what's going on in Fulton? Um, this is another case out of the Third Circuit, and at issue is the city of Philadelphia's foster care program. Um, the petition notes that there's an urgent lack of foster homes uh, in the city, and uh, that the agency here, um, Catholic Social Services, wants to provide homes but is being prevented to um, by the city. Now, this is uh, going to be I really wanted to get into the weeds of the facts of this case a little bit, um, but time does not permit that. Um, but that's simply because I can definitely see a situation where the justices seize onto any number of facts uh, to decide this case on a very narrow ground, rather than tackling you know, really the lar larger legal issue that um, businesses and local governments and individuals have been grappling with and asking for um, guidance for. So. That big legal question centers around the court's controversial ruling in employment division versus Smith. And generally, it said that you know states can, but they don't have to provide religious exceptions to laws that are neutral toward religion or generally applicable. Uh, these gave gave rise to the federal RIFRA um, and also uh, many RIFRAs in the states, which really require uh, a heightened need um, in order to be able to burden religious disputes. But that's not explicitly, um, Pennsylvania's RIFRA isn't explicitly an issue here, uh, although we'll see it as kind of playing in the background. So Catholic Social Services says that the city's application of its anti-discrimination laws, while it looks neutral, is not in fact neutral and is instead a pretext for discriminating uh, against Catholic Social Services. And it relies heavily on uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop, uh, the case out of Colorado, where a baker refused to make a specialized uh, wedding cake for a same-sex couple. And the Supreme Court found that the state agency that considered that case below uh, was hostile towards the baker's religion. But here the Third Circuit said that wasn't the case, that's not what's going on here, that the city was really just trying to apply its anti-discrimination law. And, you know, again, that's going to be a really fact-based uh, question. Um, but in addition to that question, the plaintiffs have outright just asked the court to overrule uh, Smith. And I'll note that um, 
you know, this is a time we've seen with the membership changing on the court recently. We've seen an increase of petitioners just asking the court to do away with precedent. And there's been a really robust conversation among the justices in their uh, in their opinions uh, dealing with this. So that'll be something interesting to see um, whether or not they tackle the factual issue or if they go straight for the precedent. Um, and then finally, uh, I'm going to talk about DOJ versus the House Judiciary Committee, uh, which was just set, scheduled for the December sitting. So for this one, we're going to leave the third, third circuit and we're going to go to the D.C. circuit and talk about perhaps one of the most D.C. topics there is, the, the Mueller report. Um, as part of Robert Mueller's investigation into uh, Russian meddling into the 2016 election and possible obstruction of justice by the Trump administration, uh, a grand jury issued more than 2,800 subpoenas and heard testimony from nearly 80 witnesses. Now, all of that material is subject to um, general grand jury secrecy laws, which uh, prohibit jurors, court personnel, and government attorneys and others um, from disclosing um, what goes on in the grand jury. And Attorney General Barr said that that required not only that he redacted from the public report, but also said that Congress members could not view uh, the grand jury material. So Congress didn't like that very much. Uh, in particular, they wanted to see materials related to uh, the Mueller investigation's um, obstruction of justice charge to try and show that there was a pattern uh, by the administration. And they asked the DOJ to turn it over under an exception to the jury secrecy rules uh, for, quote, judicial proceedings. Um, so this exception allows um, for disclosure in judicial proceedings where there is a particularized need. And so the question here is whether or not an impeachment trial is a judicial proceeding um, that will allow the disclosure of that information. So in keeping with um, longtime SCOTUS practice, that is probably the most boring way to talk about the Mueller report. And so that's the issue the Supreme Court is going to decide. Uh, the district court here uh, found that the impeachment trials were judicial proceedings and required the DOJ to turn over some of that material. That's all been stayed, why the case works its way through the courts. Um, the DC circuit looked at previous circuit um, precedent to say, to agree with the district court, um, but it also analyzed the question um, for itself. It said the text of the constitution talks about impeachment in ways that uh, we think about the, about the judiciary. So for instance, it says whenever the president is tried uh, that the uh, chief justice must preside. And it also point, the court also pointed to the fact that grand jur jury materials have long been provided to Congress in congressional in, um, impeachments, including the impeachment of two presidents and three judges, um, including President Nixon and Judge Nixon, which, again, provides me an endless amount of confusion uh, in this area. <clears throat> now, in doing so, the district court rejected the DOJ's um, argument that judicial proceedings only included those that took place in court, and it rejected um, the arguments on behalf of the administration that would actually cause separation of powers problems, not involving the executive, but between Congress and the courts, allowing courts to become unduly involved in the impeachment process. So uh, I think one last thing that's important to note is that all three um, judges on the DC circuit uh, to hear, to decide this case agreed with the point about um, judicial proceedings, including uh, Trump nominee uh, Naomi Rao. And so that's how this case comes to the court. Thank you very much, Kimberly. <clears throat> Again, I encourage everyone to uh, 
ask questions in the Q&A here on Zoom, or you can put them into social media. I will take the moderator's privilege and throw a question out there. Um, well, for for anyone, I, 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 Anastasia brought up the, the standing issue in the Obamacare case. And I personally believe that they're likely, they're like some of the conservatives want revenge on Obamacare, even if it's a nothing burger, as Tom pointed out. I mean, it's, it's either doesn't do anything or it's unconstitutional, but either way, it doesn't do anything. Um, but the standing issue is interesting. And I, I, would, I had done a little bit of research about whether or not people had been able to obtain standing in the past just merely with a mandate without any penalties. Um, and I don't know if anyone, Tom or Anastasia, like looked into this. I know it came up in our original 2012 Obamacare stuff where some people that I would debate on the issue, you know, said that if the tax didn't exist, uh, you would still have a feel of compulsion to, so, so it came up in the context of being like, if it, was, if it wasn't a tax, the mandate it would still be unconstitutional under the Commerce Clause because you have a legal compulsion even without a penalty, that's still a legal compulsion. Uh, but it's an interesting argument. I don't know if anyone has further thoughts on that. Okay, well, one thought I have is, is that in this case, even if the justices want to get out of hearing this case by using the standing issue, it doesn't seem like a case where technically it actually is a nothing burger because here the plaintiffs allege in the fifth the fifth circuit acknowledged that these plaintiffs uh, said that they would follow the law merely because it's the law and in so doing they suffered an injury they paid for health insurance they wouldn't have otherwise paid for so at least in this case i think it's very plausible that the plaintiffs did in fact uh, suffer an injury. But secondly, I think there's just a rule of law consideration here that it's not good policy to have all of these laws on the books that the government contends are not enforceable or don't mean anything or don't actually have any effect on you. Um, I think that's a real problem. I think we should favor allowing people to go into court and to get them off of the books for the sake of for the sake of our judicial system. But my last point would be that in practice, I am consistently confronted by the government saying that there is not standing for some technical reason that, oh, the law isn't operating uh, uh, against you in a sure enough manner, or we can't be sure that it's gonna turn out that way, or, well, you're not penalized, somebody else is penalized. And it's, so for example, in this Ninth Circuit case I have, that's challenging the woman quota for the boards of publicly traded companies, the shareholders vote for the board members. And we brought a lawsuit on behalf of a board member and said he doesn't want to have to discriminate on the basis of sex. And the government said, well, he's not penalized for it. The corporation is. He can do whatever he wants. Sure, there's a law on the books that legally requires him to discriminate on the basis of sex. But because the penalty doesn't apply to him, he doesn't have standing. And I think that's a very unfair way of going about it. It ignores that the whole point of the law is to get shareholders to do something. The whole point of having the mandate on the books is because the government assumes that it's going to at least coerce some people into abiding by it. If they didn't care about having it on the books, why are they fighting back so hard? It's because we know that this has a coercive effect on people, that it has a deterrent effect. And so at least I personally favor allowing standing in these types of situations. Yeah, I would be surprised if the court held that there wasn't standing. I mean, there is a doctrine that says there are certain legal rights that can't be vindicated in court, but this doesn't have the shape and feel of those. This is a real challenge to a really important uh, provision of an incredibly important statute. And so the idea that, hey, nobody can bring suit because it's there's no enforcement mechanism seems very unlikely to carry the day that it st stays on the books particularly because of the real standing issues that, that certainly exist with respect to the follow-on arguments about severability. The rest of the statute has huge effects. 
So while there are some true formalists on standing in the Supreme Court, I, can, I would be very, very surprised if they could get to five. I think Anastasia frames it correctly when she says like they could avoid deciding the case if that's truly necessary. But given that there's no, nobody thinks that the um, minimum coverage provision is supposed to actually have any concrete effect now, that there should be nine votes for that, no matter what the theory. And given that there seems to be so much support in the court's doctrine and in common sense that the statute is severable. I mean, witness the fact that Congress withdrew the tax provision but left the rest of the statute standing. It seems one piece of evidence that they intended to withdraw the penalty and leave the rest of the statute standing. Given that the, the case seems almost relatively easy, uh, I would be surprised if they went searching for off-ramps here. It's interesting that the at the time of the Obamacare case and the uh, surprising tax penalty or decision that you had, a lot of people had pointed out, including myself, that there, it, it, this unicorn tax had to exist in between two precarious things. One is that if it got so high, it would be considered a like a penalizing tax and it could be problematic in that way. One, if it got so low that it was no longer even a tax. So it had to be like right in the middle, the Goldilocks tax in that, in that way. Um, Kimberly, do you have anything to add on that or? Nope. Uh, I had a quite, uh, follow up for Tom and then uh, again, please ask us questions if you have any. Um, you kind of mentioned it a little bit, but I, but, and I know a little bit about the Google and Oracle, Oracle case, but you know, there's so much interest in it from the tech community. What, what are, you know, you're advocating for Google, of course, but what are the realistic implications to like, what, what, what we see things manifestly change with the phones in our pocket? Like will price of all these things that go up drastically software if they have to rewrite these, these interface codes every single time, for example. I mean, that's certainly the perspective of our side of the case, that there's massive retrospective liability, Oracle's damage request in this case for Android, you know, would probably somewhere be in the order of around $10 billion in this one case. Um, and I think it's pretty indisputable that a lot, lot, lot of software has been written using the practice of uh, re-implementing interfaces in this way. I think that the content community's view is, you no, know, people adapt and people will create their own interfaces and people have the right to the protection uh, of the copyright laws. The, the copyright laws cover computer software explicitly. And the way to kind of encourage innovation is to make sure that these rights are enforceable. Um, you know, the, the overwhelming weight of the technology world is, is on Google's side of that question, but, you know, it, we, one, not, one ought not, um, you know, run past the point that kind of the point of the copyright laws is to ensure that content gets protection. Um, and so, you know, it's not that Oracle's argument to the contrary is without force, and Oracle claims that the, you know, these concerns are really pretty overstated because you can create new interfaces and that this is effectively just a shortcut. So, uh, but the, I do think that the, it is the, that concern that you're raising that ultimately caused the Supreme Court to hear the case in the first place. That the, the technology world had come to the Supreme Court and said, look, this is really gonna be a huge problem uh, if you don't put a stop to it. Uh, I like this question that came from anonymous attendee to Anastasia. It's not exactly looking ahead, but she she brought the case up. Um, where the Constitution does where does the Constitution give the government the power to regulate who companies can choose to hire um, in your in your Ninth Circuit case? 
Yeah, well, maybe that's uh, looking ahead. I mean, I certainly hope it's looking ahead because I hope that uh, in a future Supreme Court term, this case goes up to the Supreme Court and we get to the issue of whether quotas can come back. This is the return of quotas right now in this day and age. Uh, you know, this 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 law that we're challenging right now is a gender quota, but actually California just passed uh, a racial and uh, uh, underrepresented minority quota as well. And so I think it, it maybe it will go to the court one day. But in any event, um, I guess the state would say that it's utilizing its police power, its power that's reserved to the states, just like it does to enact any anti-discrimination law. Uh, the funny thing about this anti-discrimination law is that it actually requires discrimination because it requires people to take into account uh, uh, race or sex when they're making hiring decisions. And, um, you know, so I think that's a it's an odd way to go about uh, anti-discrimination. And in fact, actually, when we've gotten into it, the government has has not actually ever said that it's meant, at least in the context of the woman quota, to remedy discrimination. It said that it's actually just getting into the business of balancing, that it thinks that there should be balance for the sake of balance, um, which I don't think is a legitimate government interest. I don't think the government has any interest or authority to impose a law like that under the Constitution. It's antithetical to the Constitution. Um, but the state would argue that it's part of its uh, police powers. Um. Uh, and uh, David Frost asked the question, which we, we have with the, uh, you can say it, Odyssey, I can't say the Uzabunum, is that you say it? The, the name, yes, or something okay. like that, sorry. It's close enough, but on the question of nominal damages and standing, this was interesting as David Frost asked about the New York Rifle and Pistol Association case, which tried to use, or, or tried to, that came up that maybe if they would have just asked for damages, this entire thing would, would not have come up. Um, and that kind of brings up something I was thinking in terms of, of looking up ahead and maybe during the cert, the cert stage, cert petitions going to the court for next term. Did the court signal in the Second Amendment case and not taking any of the 10, 10 Second Amendment petitions and not taking any of the 10 qualified immunity petitions that essentially you shouldn't try on, on this for at least for the near term? Um, I don't know. I think Kimberly, you've written about qualified immunity a little bit, uh, or but if you want, if someone wants to feel that. Well, you know, there are other qualified immunity cases um, that the court's going to be considering in its long conference, as well as at least one Second Amendment case. So I, I think regardless of how people read the tea leaves of um, that decision last term, I think people are still going to keep trying. Uh, and I, I wonder if it was just a more of a matter of timing, um, given that we are coming on election season. Um, I know that we are in election year, but of course that will have passed by November. Uh, and I just wonder if the court is more willing to take those kind of controversial issues, um, you know, after the election rather than right before it. Tom, um, you have any opinion on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I am in the camp of the court having said functionally, we're not gonna get into this right now. Joan Biskupic had a series of articles for CNN in which her reporting was that the court ended up taking, uh, declining the follow-on gun cases after the New York rifle and pistol case because there was a concern among second amendment advocates in the court that the chief justice was just not there and that they couldn't really uh, have confidence in how those cases would come out. Uh, so this is an area, you know, where judicial conservatives, I think, 
continue to believe that the court's composition presents an obstacle to you know, so, some of the more significant issues that remain uh, open uh, under the Constitution. With respect to qualified immunity, the, the court moves much, in general, much more slowly than society. Uh, there was extensive Reuters reporting on qualified immunity that has really drawn a lot of attention to the issue, along with all of the protests relating to police conduct and misconduct. And then there have been a couple of judicial opinions. So there is a lot of attention in the community to qualified immunity, but there isn't uh, a lot of expression of frustration with the doctrine inside the Supreme Court itself. And so I don't see the court kind of reacting particularly quickly to narrow qualified immunity doctrine. And so long as it's not going to narrow it, there's very little incentive to take any of those court cases because those who are concerned about qualified immunity think it's you know kind of run rampant. Uh, those justices will think that the defendants are likely to win in the Supreme Court. And so they turn, I think that those cases probably got denied nine to nothing. Um, you know, I think it's much more likely that there'll be a legislative fix with respect to qualified immunity, which after all is just a made up doctrine, uh, than it is that the Supreme Court in the next, you know, three to five years will do anything. Uh, the Second Amendment is inevitable. I mean, the, the court cannot just leave this uh, entire body of law out there with the resulting significant disagreements in the lower courts, some courts taking the Second Amendment seriously and some not. And having said, there is this right, but we just won't tell you what it means. That's going to become untenable at some point, but you know, we are just not at that point yet as far as the court's concerned. Uh, I, I agreed with you on the position, and I think that some of the unrest and political schisms of this year, for example, has John Roberts, which I think, in my opinion, and I think a lot of people's opinion, one of his main drives is maintaining the integrity and respect of the court from both sides and he would not want to preside in this schismatic world he would not want to pr preside over the court that loses all respectability because 50 percent of the country hates the other 50 percent of the country and and only in a second amendment case that was as mundane as the new york rifle and pistol association might he be willing to weigh in for guidance um but i wouldn't expect much much more on that um and seeing if we hear i think we're just about out of time um we're going to changeover unless anyone had anything any final thoughts on any cases that are coming up or issues that are being watched uh, in the cert world or nope all right um we're going to change over here uh just immediately after in the in the in the uh turnover oh wait we did get a question oh okay um in the turnover here we're going to just stay here and it's 4.30 comes in. We will have Ilya and Judge Don Willett come in, but join me in clapping in your own place for your panel. Uh, and uh, thank you very much, everyone. <clears throat>